Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. So, a very busy show ahead of us tonight. Let's say hello straight away to Niall Hatch, who's out in Greystones. Hello, Niall. All good? All good, yes, Derek. Absolutely. Looking forward to, to chatting to you all about wildlife today. Let's say hello to Aina Nilauna now at home in Terenura. Aina, you've just got back from Cork, where you were launching your book. Did you have a good time? I had a great time in Cork. I haven't been in Cork in ages. Went down on the train and stayed overnight. I was off in Vibes and Scribes getting getting my book launch. I went off for a meal afterwards, came back on the train again the next day. Cork's a great city. I don't know why I don't go there more often. Yes, I concur, Aina. In fact, I was in Cork all week myself, filling in for Dahi O'Shea on the Today programme on TV. So, lucky me, I just happened to be there when you were launching your book and I was in the adoring crowd. I was one of the ones throwing my underwear at you, Aina. But at any rate, I was very impressed by the quality of questions in the Q&A session after the launch. We'll come to that in a moment. But before that, you might just remind people what this latest incarnation is about. Well, Derek, my latest book is called Wild and Wonderful Around the World with Aina. And it's very, you know, as you know, it's a prequel to the one I wrote during COVID called Our Wild World, which was about how the world works. This one is how how I learnt about how the world works, if you like. All my adventures in different habitats under the sea and in woodlands and forests and seeing whales and going to ice caps and all of that kind of thing. How the world is reacting to us as we live there. So we had a, we had a launch in, in Vibes and Scribes, the bookshop in Cork, and the good and the great all came out. And I was talking to Kevin Corker and we were talking about the book and everybody, including yourself, Julie listened and the president of UCC himself, John O'Hallerton, introduced me. So it was a wonderful evening down in Cork and loads of books were sold afterwards, I'm told. Well, good for you, Aina, because you put the work in and you deserve the return. Now, back to the questions I mentioned earlier, because you did an interview with Kevin and then there was a Q&A and there were lots of very interesting topics raised, some very timely indeed, considering that same evening RTE were broadcasting a primetime special about climate change and how it's affecting our biodiversity. And we will come to that with Niall in just a moment. I know some of Niall's colleagues from Birdwatch Ireland featured in that. But at any rate, some of the questions, let's start with this first one, which had to do with the old slogan, reduce, reuse, recycle, which is all about the underlying movement of becoming environmentally conscious, which started back in the 70s, as I understand it. But that slogan is still used to this very day. And one of the ladies in the audience brought this to your attention and asked you, did you agree or words to that effect? And you said, no, get rid of the three R's, concentrate on the one R, the word refuse. Explain, Aina. That's right. I think it should all be replaced by refuse. I was saying, you know, why are we using all this stuff in the first instance? I mean, we think we're wonderful if we use it again or if we actually recycle it. But you're using up the Earth's resources in the first instance. I was pointing out that in actual fact, nobody in Ireland ever had died of thirst. This is not the Sahara, for example. And yet, how many people go around dragging bottles of water with them, buying them all the time, using plastic for this one single use plastic? Similarly, with cups of coffee, go around with one hanging out of your face all the time you could at least have a keep cup about it so refused I was saying refused to be taking new stuff all the time refused to add to the drain on the world's resources there were never so many people and there's only so much resources and it's causing all this problems so some of the problems on earth anyway so refuse is the new word no reduce for use and recycle refuse and then there won't be any need for reduce for use and recycle 
And the other question I particularly liked had to do with not the birds and the bees, but the birds and the politicians. And somebody in the audience said, Aina, who would you trust more to plant a tree? A thrush, which is a bird, or a politician? Yeah, that was a very good one, all right, because as we know, thrushes eat the berries of trees like holly and they excrete the stone half an hour later and then it falls on the ground and a new holly tree will grow. So anywhere the bird is up in a tree, another tree can be produced out of what they drop down underneath. Whereas politicians, I'm afraid looking at trees in Ireland, it seems to be quite a political issue in fact. And when you talk about forestry in Ireland, how much of Ireland is covered with forest? 11%, we all know this. But the shocking thing is that that's the second worst in Europe after Malta. But even more shocking is that it's been 11% since the 1990s. We have not afforested any more than that. Now, Creature are the semi-state body who own a lot of the forests in our name. And what they do is reforest. They cut down their forest, they harvest the timber and they replant. But afforestation, getting more land under forestry, is absolutely beset with all kinds of strictures. You have to have planning permission to plant anything more than a hectare of land. Anything more than that, you have to get planning permission you have to apply for that it takes ages to get all of this is too much restriction for people to do and it's not happening and grants are given for this but culture can't be given grants because one arm of the government can't be given grants to a semi-state body and the result is that we're still at the same 11% of which maybe 8% 9% is, is single species Sitka spruce and I was pointing out a single species Sitka spruce spruce is a great tree grows very fast it's evergreen and it sucks up car- carbon at twice the rate that an oak tree will do because obviously sickly spruce has its leaves all the year round and the oak tree only has them half the year. But a forest of Sitka spruce is a crop. Make no mistake about that. It's a crop. It's used for industry, for cutting down trees, for timber. And the timber, when it's put into houses, holds on to that carbon. So from a climate point of view, from fighting against climate change, your Sitka spruce is twice as effective as an oak tree. But when we look at wildlife biodiversity and you look at a Sitka spruce forest, single species, all the same age, no light going through, and you look at a native woodland with oak and hazel and holly and alder and all of the native trees there instead, different ages, different ways of light getting in, no light in the summer because the leaves are closed, light in the winter when the leaves are gone, you have much, much greater biodiversity there. So it shouldn't be a case of either or, one of the spawn of Satan and the other of the Holy Grail. We need more of both in actual fact in this country and this is where our politicians should all be saying we want more trees instead of saying oh it's blocking our view and there's too many trees here already and we've done our bit in our county, the other county should be doing more. Trees should not be a a political issue. Leave it to the thrushes. Music to the ears of Niall Hatch, I have no doubt. Now, Niall, I know that you watched with great interest that primetime special the other evening because some of your colleagues featured in it. And Aina has just been talking about the lack of biodiversity in our woodland here. And this is what this programme was about. What is happening to our biodiversity? Yes, absolutely. I watched it with great interest and I have to say with great concern. It's something that we've discussed many times on the programme over the years, this biodiversity crisis that we're currently in and how that's linked to the climate crisis. I don't think you can look at uh, the two independently. I think that they're both very much linked to each other. One leads to the other and it's kind of a a circular kind of thing. The less biodiversity we have, the more climate risk there is, the more climate change there is, the less biodiversity we have. So it's like this vicious cycle. So it's very concerning and I think there's a lot of wake-up calls for us here in Ireland on that. If If you look at the fact that, you know, 60 
83% of our bird species are considered threatened. Uh, we have 85% of our protected habitats in Ireland are considered to be in unfavourable or poor condition. Uh, a third of our bee species, for example, are at risk of extinction. It really doesn't paint a very rosy picture at all, I'm afraid. The question is always, Niall, what can we do about it? It does seem overwhelming sometimes, doesn't it? And people think that what can we in Ireland, a small country, do about it? Well, the fact of it is there's many things that we can do. Uh, our environmental record in this country is among the worst in all of Europe. And we can definitely do things to address that by demanding more of the powers that be to, to stick up for us. Because, of course, biodiversity, it's not just something that's nice to have. Nature isn't just a, a treat for the good times. It's intrinsic to our well-being. It is what drives the quality of our air, our soil, our water, our agriculture, our international reputation, our physical and mental well-being. Being. It's really vital for all of these things. So we shouldn't just accept it that this is the way it is and that progress means that we have fewer animals and plants than we used to. That's just not acceptable. And other countries don't see it the same way necessarily. Having said that, all across Europe, we do have big problems with biodiversity. We need to do a lot more to protect our officially protected areas. Many of them are just protected on paper only. And more should be done to safeguard those habitats. And I think that a lot more needs to be done to assist farmers and landowners in particular who are trying to do the right thing by nature uh, and for all of us, therefore, to be properly compensated and assisted in the work that they're doing. I think that that's really, really vital. I think that we need to make it a lot easier and a lot more uh, sustainable mm. for farmers to, to think about biodiversity and to farm with nature in mind. Because in doing that, they're benefiting every single one of us and making a better future for us and, and those who come after us. So I think that's really vital and we need to maybe switch our ideas about what is really economically important. We'll put a link to that primetime special on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. If you haven't seen it, you can watch it there or the RTE player. And if you've already seen it and want to see it again, well, you know what to do. All right. Let's look ahead now to something very positive. Starting next Monday, which is Halloween, the 31st of October and running right through the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and a little bit on Saturday, RTE Radio presents Nature Nights. Lots of familiar voices will appear on your radio between the hours of 10 and 11pm and our team are very much involved. So we start off next Monday with a documentary about the Barn Owl presented by Terry Flanagan. We'll talk about that later. Aina, you'll be on Tuesday night and you'll be looking at the nocturnal affairs of plants with Dr Matthew Jebb. Yes, indeed, I'll be looking at nocturnal plants because, you know, if you were quickly to say, well, there's nothing to say about plants at night because they photosynthesize, they need light during the day, surely they're all asleep at night, minding their own business until the following day. But um, lots of interesting things about plants at night. I'll be talking about unknowning the daisy. It has this opening, closing mechanism which happens at night. You have something, say, like our woodbine, honeysuckle, and it's pollinated by moths and it puts out this beautiful perfume at night. How does it know it's dark? How does it know to do it? But evolution has been the case where the light goes, the perfume comes, the moths arrive and pollination happens. There are lots of different plants that do interesting things at night. Cacti, we were up in the Botanic Gardens in the Cactus House looking at those. But sure, if I tell you to all to you now, there'll be nothing to hear on Tuesday night, so you just have to listen for the rest of it. <laughs> Niall, you'll be appearing on Wednesday evening and you went to Trinity College to look at urban foxes. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that, Derek. I've loved foxes ever since I was a kid. I grew up with urban foxes and suburban foxes all around me. So it's going to be a real treat. I'm not just about the birds, you know. I love foxes and other mammals as well. So I went into Trinity College to learn more about the urban foxes that have made the campus there their home. Right in the middle of the city centre, it really is quite remarkable that they're not just surviving there, but it seems absolutely thriving. This is where one of our two foxes had um, a family earlier on this year. 
sadly, because it's also in the vicinity, there's also St. Patrick's Well. They lost one of the cubs due to drowning in the well. But it's a secluded area, but they don't seem to have an issue with students and people because they regularly will sit and bask on the roof gardens and the lawns when students are there. And even when they were learning their ropes and things, they used to climb the scaffolding stairs to the rubrics building that is still being renovated and spend their time in the attic. And then when the builders would come back in the next morning, they'd be quite happy there beside them and they'd be still kangoing away the old plaster and everything to do the renovations. So they are very tame in the college. So make a date for Nature Nights starting next Monday right here on RTE Radio 1 and running Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and a little bit on Saturday from 10pm to 11pm. Lots of familiar voices and lots of great stories and very passionate people who really do care about our biodiversity. All coming up next week right here on RTE Radio 1. Now last week, I've mentioned it already, I was in Cork filling in for Dahi on the Today Show and I got a chance to pop over to Photo Wildlife Park because I wanted to see the baby rhino that was born to proud mom Maya and dad Jamil. It's absolutely gorgeous. Doesn't quite have the horn formed yet, but still looks very much like a rhino. Anyway, it was a very long gestation period and it was born on the 19th of September, as I discovered when I spoke with the lead ranger at FOTA, Aidan Rafferty. Well, uh, yeah, welcome to the, the rhino house. Thanks very much indeed, Aidan. Um, you're all over the news at the moment. Not just you, but Photo no, in general. No, I don't or should I say, your rhino is all yeah, over no the news. no one's watching the news for me, uh, unless they're very sad. But they no, want to see the baby. <laughs> yeah, the baby, yeah. It's all about the baby at the moment. Well, tell so, us about the baby then. Uh, he was born on September 19th. The first baby rhino born in uh, of that species, Greater One-Horned Rhino, or Indian rhino. First one in the country. So Dublin Zoo have white rhinos. Um, so this is the first time we've had Greater One-Horned Rhinos in the country. So he's the first... Irish native rhino to be born here. Okay, now what's the difference for the benefit of me and the listeners? Uh, so the greater one horn rhino, or as I was saying, the Indian rhino, they're Asian. And so their uh, historical range was basically the northern Indian continent. So from Pakistan, right through northern India, Nepal, and to Bangladesh and across there, and that, that whole northern region. And white rhinos and black rhinos are African. Um, and then you have, so there's five species, then you have the Sumatran and the Javan, and they're incredibly rare and incredibly endangered. Okay. So we'll just climb through these bars here. There we go. Yeah, so with her, she's still quite protective, so we, we won't go too close. We, she has a bit of food in front of her now, so she's not so bad. But she does kind of charge at you and kind of um, try and encourage oh, you to stay back. Oh, yeah, here he is. Yeah. He's yeah. gorgeous, isn't he? He's stunning. He's absolutely, oh, absolutely stunning. beautiful. He's and staying very close to mom as well. Yeah, he will. So, and she and she's, uh, stays very close to him as well, like, unless there's food under her nose. Sometimes she gets a bit distracted. But most of the time, she'll kind of insert herself between uh, the calf and whatever she might perceive to be a, a, threat. a threat. Yeah. yeah. And if you go too close, then she will kind of sometimes run at you. So how often do rhinos breed? Tell me about the gestation. Tell me about the birth. So the, the gestation is usually, um, you normally kind of go on an average of around 450 days, 454 days. Uh, so that translates to about 15 to 16 months. Uh, and obviously you can kind of get... That's a, a long time. It's a very long time, yeah, yeah. So, and it's a long wait then as well for us, you know. And so, especially, you get especially anxious then towards the end. So we weren't 100% sure that she had caught initially. So um, we sent off um, fecal samples to Chester Zoo. Now, when you say got caught, you mean get uh, pregnant? Get pregnant, yeah. yeah. 
yeah so just using common parlance for this who keeps That's okay yeah. yeah so yeah so we weren't sure that she was pregnant so what you do is you take fetal samples over the course of um, 30 days you take a, couple, a sample every uh, three days I think it was and we sent that off then to Chester Zoo and they analyze the hormones and that and they can tell then from the increase in the in the hormones as to whether or not she's pregnant based on other samples they've done in the past mm -hmm. uh, so yeah so uh, we were pretty sure that Jamil had covered her we mixed them in May of last year initially what we were trying to do was mix them in the in the winter and then you add the 15 months and the hope would be that they calf in the spring and summer. So okay, you, so you there isn't a breeding season per se? No, they can kind of breed all year round. So they, they'll come into season kind of every 20 to 40 days. Um, so we had a chart with her and we were tracking her estrus. So you, you tell by the males then whether she's in season or not. Right. So she'll start whistling herself a lot and she'll start spraying urine, which isn't a common thing for no, them. No, no, just go back there, but you can tell by the males. We tell by the males and how interested they are. And then you'll tell by her vocalisation. Ah, I see what you mean. Okay. And the fact that she, like, so the males will spray urine quite a lot, but the females don't generally spray that much but when they are in season she will and they're spraying that because that's the scent marker for the male okay. the male will come and he'll test the urine and then he'll detect the the increase in hormones uh, and then she'll he'll know that she's in season uh, and so quite often if you have a male next door to her he'll start to get agitated when he starts to pick up the hormones so, right. so quite often the male will know before you know because he's picked up the scent of the and urine. And so if you want them to breed then you put them in the same enclosure? Exactly yeah. No. Yeah. In the real world that we live in, if you yeah. like, if you don't like somebody, you kind of brush them off. Yeah, yeah. Can she brush them off? What if she doesn't want to mate with him? If she doesn't want to mate with him, uh, things she might can find him attractive. Yeah, well, things can get violent. Like, and the, and the mating with these species can get incredibly violent. And a lot of it is down to the the age and the experience of the two participants. So if you get a very dominant male and quite a young female, then he can be overly aggressive at her, uh, or vice versa. Now these two, because they're both kind of nine, I think they're both nine at the time. It's very similar age and a very similar size and weight. But he had no experience as a bull, so it was his first time ever and her first time ever being covered. So they were actually fairly okay with each other. They were quite gentle with each other. He spent a lot of time sitting down, which is common for the males. And then the female would spend a lot of time just poking him to get him up off his arse. Okay. And, then, and then eventually like, he'll start to take interest, you know. Right. Um, and that can take a couple of hours. So like the, you, can, you can be sitting here. So like, we would watch it get all. Get on that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So we would have people positioned at a number of gates in case violence does erupt. Um, and what do you do then? Jump in between them and stop no, you basically have to close the gate as fast as you okay. can if you get enough of a gap. Sometimes if they're running too close together, you just have to leave it and, and run. But if you can get enough of a gap and you have a worry, then you can close the gate. But most of the time you're just leaving nature take its course, okay. unless it gets incredibly violent. So know? then he eventually but will mount her yeah, and exactly, impregnate yeah. her. And is it long? Is it all over in a minute? No, no, it's fairly fairly fast and fairly brief. Okay, and then, then you, it's all over. And then yeah. what? He loses interest? In basically, yeah, he'll just go back and sit down again. Okay, yeah. and then you know what happens to her then uh, well she will be in season probably for it's usually about 24 hours and you might get a kind of a, a kind of a pre-estrus kind of where they're they're coming into season um, and then maybe a small bit afterwards but they're most fertile basically for about 24 hours but she hours. won't want to mate again and he won't want no to mate no again, so, so after she so he does it once and that's it that's what i'm wondering yeah, well, we weren't there the evening, uh, so like we stayed here until about eight o'clock at night, and then we just left them together overnight right. uh, because we had seen no signs of any aggression. So we're not one hundred percent sure how many times he covered. Oh, okay. I do think he covered her at least two or three times because it was his first time. He didn't really know what to do with himself, right. and so he missed quite a few times. Okay. And so we weren't one hundred percent sure at which point he did manage to cover her. And but like I say, usually it's really really quick. Like if you look at a giraffe, and that's literally over in seconds. Right. Um, so like the, a giraffe will will mount a female. Um, 
and as soon as he ejaculates, like that's he's gone, and then he's he's done for a little while. Then again, and then he might come back then in another kind of. So anyway, he goes minutes. off. He's no interest now. It's all over. Yeah, so he's now the work starts for her. Does she immediately start feeding up, or what happens? No, <laughs> not really. To be honest, like you will not detect any kind of a change really oh, okay. for for months and months, and you won't even see any size difference really you know so like you can see the weight chart is really how you definitely start to know so you're going to see maybe by about the third trimester that weight is going to start increasing uh, as the the fetus grows in size then that's when you really kind of start to know when you start getting that kind of that curve and the weight is going up you don't really tend to feed anything extra the last thing you want to do with the pregnant female is get her too fat okay um because then you're going to run into trouble when calving um, because everything when when they get too heavy everything the channel gets constricted and then you can have a breach so you really actually want to keep them trim and then when she does calf that's kind of when you want to start kicking in the protein and the extra nutrients and stuff so she's here with us now again so always looking for food and yeah, she walk. walked away with the baby there for a while <laughs> she, yeah, she, and now she's she, decided we're okay and <laughs> they're back again yeah yeah yeah. so um we use that really for for training we do a lot of training with them one of the biggest issues you have with them is their feet and then again that comes back to weight you you really do want to keep them a nice tidy weight for their size and so we do a lot of weighing on the wayboard and we do a lot of body scoring you want to be able to see the ribs a lot of the time you'll come into a zoo and you'll see a rhino and it'll look really ribby that's a good thing if you can't see the ribs your rhino is too fat basically okay, it's obese it's obese yeah yeah if it's possible yeah. for a rhino to be obese and it is yeah oh, oh definitely is yeah yeah and it's a, it's a massive thing because you can get ovarian cysts and everything with the females if they get too heavy and then again they'll have trouble with their feet uh, and in oh. zoos you know you can get a lot of artificial substrates absolutely so we've got uh, you can't re- you can't see it obviously on radio but all of the the beds inside are springy mulch and they're a meter deep yeah it's a really good springy mattress that you have for them and that's just to take pressure off the feet and then outside we have the sand we try and rake up the sand as often as we can and just get that kind of springy again and then obviously the paddocks and it being ireland it gets really muddy out there and that's perfect environment for them so other than that you don't do anything at all for her you just let her go through yeah just the, no all you just do is you should make sure she's she's fed she's a decent and fed enough yeah and yeah looked after exactly yeah and then the right minerals and vitamins as well okay. you know but that's kind of a part of a balanced diet anyway so when it comes um, to the birth skipping on yeah that 15 months you have an idea roughly i think the 7th of september was her date on paper and obviously she went kind of um 12 days past that but that's not like i said there's always kind of a week two weeks mm-hmm. give or take of that of that planned date anyway so usually kind of about a month in advance we will start separating her off but i think it was maybe about six weeks that we started putting her into the what we call the long stall or it's the dry stall basically because there's no there's no access to water there and then we banked up the walls um as much as we could and you turn off um any water to that so you keep it nice and dry and nice and clean because uh, obviously if you introduce water into the bed then you get contaminants and you get a lot of bacteria growing in it so you want the bed as, as dry and as clean as possible mm-hmm. and we change out the mulch then so that the mulch is usually in there for a few months but obviously then you can get a, a build-up of um, bacteria, protozoa, cryptosporosis, that kind of stuff. So we changed out the entire bed, change all of the mulch, get it as clean as possible coming up to the birth. The main risk to the calf when it's born initially, other than maybe the mother rejecting it, is that you have an open wound where the navel is. And so if it's sitting on a dirty substrate, you have a risk of infection there. So you have to have the substrate as clean as you can. And then after she gives birth, that's kind of when you start to increase the, the nutrients in the diet then. 
And so at that point, then we, we introduced a kind of a higher protein hay and alfalfa hay. And uh, we increased the pellets a little bit um, for extra vitamins and extra minerals and stuff. Um, and then just an extra bit of, of just regular hay. Now, is the birthing long? No. So she, she started showing signs probably around six in the morning. Mm -hmm. The initial kind of cramping started. We came in at around eight o'clock. We picked that up fairly fast. And then we were just watching on camera. So when they are giving birth the last thing you want to do is, is have anyone in there that's interfering because you can just really put them off and make them nervous and then you have a risk that she'll throw the calf and she won't come back mm. to it so it's straight onto cameras at that point so i think it was around 10 past 20 past 10 that morning that we saw the waters break he gave us a little bit of a fright then because he started coming out back legs first and we were afraid that there was a it was going to be a breach but fortunately it was only about 40 minutes and then he just popped out and so usually once the the widest part of the animal is usually the hips so he came out backwards just to be awkward uh, but once the the hips cleared like he was out in a matter of seconds then and needless to say he's born without his horn yeah yeah so still no horn at the moment it's a tiny tiny little bit of a bum starting to form but yeah. nothing really that you call a horn at this point point. and how long um, will it be before that horn actually forms that no i haven't actually seen myself this is my first uh, oh, rhino okay. calf as well so i would i think you're probably going to see probably a bit more of a horn probably about three or four months maybe but he's so a lot, a lot of this yeah to me because it's our first rhinos here and it's my first rhino calf as well so a lot of it will be kind of new to me as well Everybody here at Fota has done something right because you've managed to get her this far. She's yeah, yeah, managed yeah. to give birth and the baby looks very healthy running alongside the mum there and everything yeah. else. He's growing very inquisitive. A, he's growing at a phenomenal rate. You know, he is very inquisitive and, and, and that's a fantastic trait that they have. A lot of the time now he'll kind of come over and... No, he's, he's too afraid now. Yeah, he's no, too he's much. Here, yeah. um, he was kind of come over and if you're on your own, he'll come over to you and he'll kind of sniff your hand. But he's yeah. not at the point yet where he'll allow us to kind of touch or interact with him. Well, I'm delighted to say looking in there that both mum and the little baby look absolutely happy as can be yeah yeah like I say, he, he's growing at a phenomenal rate like when he came out he looked really really scrawny and really really skinny but they'll actually put on nearly a kilo to two kilos a day in weight oh, depending wow, on the, yeah it's like me yeah <laughs> <laughs> so like depending on how on the quality of the mother's milk obviously you know so the more nutrients that we get into her like she'll pass that on to him yeah and so that's why we've kind of we've upped the protein that'll up the quality of the milk and everything and so whatever goes into her should go into him then as well I'd yeah, love so to know what they're thinking. I really would. Yeah, it'd be amazing, isn't it? Yeah. But, it, you know, it must be like at that age and everything is new. He's only started coming out now for this week, really. Like we were opening the gates last week, but he didn't really have an interest. Um, and so that's one of the things that, you know, if you, if you do come to see him, you just have to be kind of aware of the fact that he's not at that age yet where he's kind of out all the time. Right. Okay. And so a bit of patience. Because I'm sure the people are going to want to see him, especially Absolutely, now yeah, that he's got yeah. so much press coverage. Yeah. So currently, because we're, we have a rotation now where we, we bring the boys in for safety, because just in case he gets through some of the bars and into one of the mills. Mm. So we have them kind of out in the morning and then she goes out in the afternoon. So afternoon is the best time to see him. But like I say, it's just a case of having to be a bit patient sometimes because he's not always that interested in coming out, particularly if it's really cold. You know, so it was cold this morning, but I think because the rain is due now, it's after heating up a little bit. And they had a fantastic time out in the rain on Sunday, so we were all hiding and they were running around like madness and rolling around in the puddles. So he loved it. Well, it's my first baby rhino and a delight yeah. to see. Thank <laughs> yeah, you very too. much indeed, Aidan. No worries, thanks for coming to visit. Yeah, it really was a treat to see that baby rhino, and it still doesn't have a name. If you go onto their website, you will be able to participate in naming 
the baby rhino at Photo Wildlife Park. All the details on our own website, rte.ie forward slash money. Okay, as you know, this day next week is Halloween, the 31st of October, the beginning of Nature Nights, but also a lot of celebration around the country, a lot of fireworks and bangers, etc., which is very scary for animals. So with that in mind, it's time to speak with Terry Flanagan. And Terry, this week it's all about looking ahead to the 31st of October, Halloween and the beginning of Nature Nights. More about that later, but first, Halloween and the threats posed to pets. Exactly. This may be the season of mists and mellow fruitfulness Mm -hmm. for us humans, but as we approach Halloween, it's a different story for our wildlife and our pets, with fireworks and bonfires becoming the norm. So to understand what effect this is having on animals and how we can help them, I met up with vet Andrew Byrne. Andrew Byrne, he was only on the programme last week. (laughs) Well, he's on again tonight. Wonderful. He's fantastic. This is a busy time of year for certainly coming up to Halloween. And Halloween seems to come earlier and earlier every year, unfortunately, with the fireworks. It wouldn't be so bad if it was all just on the Halloween weekend. But from probably about the end of September, we have people calling us who are concerned about their pets and how they react to the sound of bangers and fireworks, and not just at night time, but even in, in the afternoon. So it's a difficult time for people who have pets who have a firework or noise phobia. What affects the animals the most? Is it the noise or is it the flashing lights or is it both? It's really the noise. It's so sudden that it takes them by surprise and they're not able to anticipate it. Like We know it's Halloween in a few weeks' time. They don't have a calendar. So all of a sudden it comes upon them and it, it's so sudden it just really sparks that fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. Um, so they get a loud noise and reflexly some dogs will just immediately it'll cause a panic attack. And of course, dogs, to their sense of hearing, is that more acute. I think they can hear up to what, something like 60,000 hertz, whereas humans, we only hear up to 20,000. No, that's very true. And there's a much wider range of frequencies that they can hear, and particularly at the high end of the frequencies. So there's probably some of the screeching noises from fireworks that we don't actually hear, they do as well. So it's certainly they're much more sensitive to sound, and, and they, don't have, they don't have that understanding of what it is. They don't know that it's safe if they're indoors and they hear the noise outside. They don't understand that they're safe where they are. And I suppose they're a little bit like ourselves. There's quite an individual variation between animals' personalities, and some animals don't react at all, and some animals have a very, very severe reaction. And Sometimes you can anticipate the ones that are going to react because some dogs, like some people, have a slightly nervous disposition or maybe suffer a little bit from anxiety and, and they're very adversely affected by the fireworks. And certainly for a you know, relatively small but sizable subset of animals, it causes very severe distress. And of course, too, animals have a fantastic sense of smell. I'm thinking particularly of dogs. And with this sense of smell, are they going to pick up on the chemicals within the fireworks more than we do? Well, they certainly do have a better sense of smell. And I think if they were near to the fireworks, they certainly would detect the smell much more than we would. It doesn't seem to be the main presenting problem. Certainly what we would be aware of is it's the noise is the main factor. Mm-hmm. Um, are some species like dogs or cats or guinea pigs, are some more susceptible than others? I think certainly the dogs are more expressive. It might be wrong to say the cats are less affected, but I think cats maybe are a little bit more independent and tend to hide away during it. Um, But I think they both would would feed it. But we certainly would see it more in dogs or it's more obvious in dogs. Uh, And how can you tell then if your dog is in distress? They show signs of restlessness and agitation. 
They'll sometimes vocalize or cry. Um, they'll often pace up and down or try and hide away. and just They're not able to settle. Some of them will come to you for attention. Some of them will run away from you. And I suppose as I say run away, it, it reminds me that it's very important to keep your pets indoors at this time of year, particularly towards the, the late afternoon, because if they're having that type of panic reaction and they're outside, then they're prone to run away. And it quite often happens that pets run away and get lost around Halloween because of the fear of the noise. So for cats and dogs, absolutely I would try and keep them indoors so at least they're in a safe environment if they do have a panic attack. And then you're there with them and you can help to calm them down. Well, that may be fine for your pet, but what about a wild animal? I'm thinking particularly of a bird, say, in a tree, and it sees this flash or it hears this massive explosion of noise and it flies away. It can't see where it's going, number one, so it must be in real danger. Yeah, it must be very distressing for wildlife, and as suppose we don't have good evidence on what the impact is. But when you look at the airports, for example, you'd allow noise necessarily to scare birds away from the runway. So we know that when there's a loud noise, birds and wildlife will run away from it. So certainly the distress that's caused to them must be significant, and particularly when it's tends to be over a number of days and weeks it's not just to say the single weekend of, of the year so i'm quite sure the wildlife are actually quite scared by it as well as pets are small animals more affected than bigger ones it doesn't seem to be it seems to affect all animals we certainly wouldn't i wouldn't notice that it's different between say small breeds and large breeds they all seem to be equal and i think very much it does come down to the personality of the pet um you know some pets are naturally a little bit laid back like some people are and they tend to be less affected so i think for sure some pets are predisposed to reacting adversely to it what about medication do you medicate we do. Most pets now don't need medication. Most pets, if they're kept indoors, and if you have a safe area for them and you're with them and calm them and maybe put on some background music, that's usually many cases all you need to do. Some pets, if they do have a bad reaction, do need medication, and there certainly are many pets who are medicated. That has changed over the years. I mean, for many years, we would have used sedative drugs, and these would actually leave the pet very sleepy. But nowadays, it's recognized that that's not always the best thing to do. We need to focus on relieving anxiety. If you sedate a pet but don't relieve an anxiety, you just keep them quiet. They don't express the fear, but they still feel it. So the trend now is to use drugs that relieve anxiety. And you can't completely stop the expression of their fear. But one of the important things is that you don't allow it to sensitize them so that every year it gets worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. So some of the anti-anxiety medications that we use also cause a certain degree of amnesia so they don't remember the event afterwards so you don't have a compounding and getting worse and worse as time goes on so the emphasis is to block the memory of it and relieve the anxiety but not necessarily having them sleeping but still Mm -hmm. hearing it and what would you say about pet owners who would like to say give their dog or their cat a sedative they need to be checked by the vet. Um, now, in some cases, you may have been to the vet recently and they may know their history and be able to prescribe for you. In other cases, they may need to, to look at your dog and listen to their heart and make sure they're happy that it's suitable for your dog. Also, to you match the medication to the individual dog and to how their reaction has been before to see what type of medication and how much they need. and what's, So it's a little bit individualized in terms of what you use for each individual pet. And also, too, with the anti-anxiety drugs, you need to use them before the event. So a lot of the medications we use now, we would start a week or two weeks before the fireworks are anticipated uh, and then carry them on for a few days afterwards mm-hmm. rather than just using a sedative on the big night. And of course, it's not just the fireworks because at this time of year, we've bonfires and animals like hedgehogs, they're in trouble there. 
Absolutely, yes. And I think the longer a bonfire is left in place, then the more likely it is that animals are going to get into it, like hedgehogs or, or rabbits. And I think that certainly is a big risk. And of course, there's environmental issues here too as well. I know it's traditional to have bonfires, but when you look at some of the materials that find their way into these bonfires, if people put in rubber tires or old mattresses and that, that's also releasing a lot of toxins into the environment and harmful for us as well as wildlife and pets. So what would your recommendations be for the next week or so? From pet's point of view, I would say certainly keep your pets in for from mid-afternoon onwards so that they're not out and about. Uh, I'd also be a little bit careful about even walking out after dark because you're out on the road and they hear a firework, they could pull suddenly out into the traffic. So keeping indoors, keeping them calm, maybe finding a safe place for them at home. Um, if there's an area that they like to sleep in or, or if you have a crate that they're used to, so they're putting a blanket over so they have an enclosed area and being with them, maybe not leaving them there on their own. So ideally what's more difficult from a sort of wider social aspect, it would be nice if we could contain this a little bit more. It would be unreasonable to say we shouldn't ever have fireworks, but it would be very nice if we were able to control it a bit more so we have more and more public displays and less of the uncontrolled fireworks that drag on for weeks and weeks. If we had it all in one night and just got it over with, it would be easier for pets. Or maybe if alternatives to fireworks like you know, laser shows and light shows would certainly be great. Um, that might be hard to achieve, but it would be nice to see a change in attitude maybe and a gradual move towards just controlling it a little bit so that we could minimise the impact on animals. That's really what it's all about, isn't it? Minimising the impact on the animals. So I suppose in a nutshell, keep your animal in, keep your pet in that night, keep an eye on it, put on some soft music, and just be there for them. That's it. It's just to keep them safe and keep them reassured. Very good advice from Andrew. Thank you very much indeed for that, Andrew Byrne. Now, Terry, as I mentioned earlier, next Monday, apart from being Halloween night, the 31st of October, it's the beginning of our Nature Nights Week here on RTE Radio 1. And you've been busy for the last several months making a documentary about barn owls in Ireland. Yes, barn owls. What a wonderful bird. And I know it's a bird that a lot of people haven't actually seen, Mm -hmm. but a lot of them will have heard it. That beautiful white bird as he goes through the woodlands. Now, I can tell you the first time I ever saw a barn owl, and it was in Blanchestown Village. But of course, Terry, everybody in Ireland is familiar with the barn owl because it's the mascot for the Late Late Show. Ladies and gentlemen, to whom it concerns, it's the Late Late Show. And here is your host, Ryan Tuberty. Good man, Ryan. Anyway, I think, Terry, we'll have a listen to a clip of your Barn Owl documentary. In this clip, you're taken by a family who live in North County, Dublin. This was some time ago, to see some barn owls in the wild. OK, guys, all aboard. On a late autumn evening, I met Brian and his son Mark, who then took me on a journey that I'll never forget. And you tell us we're going to see barn owls. Not one, not two, not three, but possibly four. four. Yeah, four barn owls. Okay, I've never seen this before. We're very close. Okay. Okay. That's the tree. It's this tree here. No, I'll keep going. There they are. Where? Oh, I can see them, yeah. Oh, they're beautiful. Oh, gorgeous. Now, they're facing they away from us. They? Yeah, well, if we, if we make a little noise, they'll... No, no, they're just turning around now. They're hissing. I can hear them hissing. They're opening their mouths at us. Okay. Can we turn off the car engine then and maybe we'll... Yeah. Uh, we're going to fly. 
I've never been as close to barn owls, certainly for as long as this. And look, the four, the four of them are there. Oh, look at look at them now. He's stretching up there. There's, look, look, look. And look, he's feeding. He's actually after passing something over. You might get a photo of that, Brian. And just as he flew in, everything went silent. So that wonderful documentary, Terry, about the barn owl will be broadcast on Monday night next, 31st of October from 10pm, right here on RT Radio 1, the beginning of our Nature Nights Week. More details can be found on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, let's move on. The Urban Squirrel Survey is a citizen science survey which launched in March of this year and will continue to collect data until January 2020. 23 people living in Belfast, Cork, Dublin, Derry, Galway, Limerick and Waterford are asked to report sightings of red and grey squirrels if they see them. Now the survey has already shown some noteworthy findings like that there are still no records of grey squirrels breaching the River Shannon, no sightings of red squirrels in Belfast city and where there are pine martens it is believed the greys may well be on the retreat. Emma Roberts from the University of Galway is leading this project and earlier she spoke with Richard Collins. Emma, Squirrel Wars, the animal version of Star Wars, the great row between the grey squirrel and the red squirrel in Ireland. It began in 1911. You'd better outline for us once again what happened in 1911 to start this civil war among the squirrels. The grey squirrel was introduced into Castle Forbes County Longford in 1911 and from there they spread throughout the island of Ireland and they spread fairly rapidly and as they spread they started to have a terrible impact on our lovely native red squirrel populations and there are a few different reasons for this and as they're both squirrels they both occupy the same ecological niche so the grey squirrel is able to eat the food that the red squirrel has cached and also coupled with that the grey squirrel can spread a virus to the red squirrel that the grey squirrel is immune to from having it for so long but it actually is fatal to the reds and that virus is called the squirrel pox virus. In Britain the first introduction of greys was in 1876 and umpteen introductions were carried out after that time. Are you saying that all the red squirrels or the grey squirrels in Ireland today are descended from less than 10 from Castle Forbes? And indeed, all 10 wouldn't have bred to start with. Surely it's a terribly narrow, limited population genetically. Now, that's the only documented introduction that we have, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there wasn't another one. It just means that we don't have a record of it. But as you said, that would be a very, very small pool indeed. But it, If that is the case, it doesn't seem to impede their ability to spread throughout the country. Thanks to work in NUI Galway, it was discovered that the pine marten had power to limit the population of grey squirrels. Where there were pine martens, there would be few or no grey squirrels. Can you outline that for us a bit? Yes, absolutely. So the pine marten, one of our native predators, is a very slow breeding mammal. And after they became protected in 1976 by the Wildlife Act, their populations started to slowly recover after a huge decline due to hunting and habitat loss. The effects of this recovery were only seen as late as 2006 and after some brilliant work that was done in NUI Galway, 
it was noticed that there's a very strong negative correlation between grey squirrel abundance and pine marten abundance. Where there are pine marten, there are much fewer grey squirrels. And there are a few different theories for this. This could be because uh, the grey squirrel is an American species of squirrel. And genetically, the pine marten and the red squirrel would have evolved alongside each other. So the grey squirrel, its natural predators would be raptors and other animals, but they wouldn't have in history come across the pine marten before, which may lead it to be naive to the pine marten. You're saying that pine marten somehow managed to eliminate the grey squirrel. If you to go back to America, the grey squirrel faces raccoons and snakes and mustelids that it hasn't here. It must be well able to deal with dangerous predators. How is it that the grey squirrel at home has to guard against snakes and raccoons and mustelids, owls? Surely it's a very vigilant species, well able to cope with only one serious predator, the pine marten. It could be for a number of reasons. The grey squirrel is not in its natural environment at the moment. So it's an introduced species. Its natural woodland would be very different to the woodland that we are providing for it here. And this could lead to a lot of different kinds of reactions to predators. I don't know if the reaction of the grey squirrel would necessarily be representative of the way that it would react to these predators at home. But there's certainly a lot of room for further study on this because this was only discovered in 2006. So uh, hopefully there'll be a lot more future studies done on this so we can learn a lot more. One issue that we do have here in Ireland is that in cities and towns where there are no pine marten, the grey squirrel do seem to be thriving. And this means that there is no room for our red squirrels to occupy urban environments. So you want to survey cities to see the extent to which there are grey squirrels in them and red squirrels in them and what the ratio is of the two. In a city, there would be lots of cats and dogs Surely it's not the place for a vulnerable animal like a squirrel of either type. Well, we are hoping to learn more about this. So this is why we've launched the Urban Squirrel Survey. We launched this in March 2022 and we're going to continue to collect data until January 2023. And for this, we are aiming to gather information on both species of squirrels, so red and grey squirrels in towns, cities and urban parks. And we're focusing, uh, to give a bit of variety, we're focusing on the seven most populated urban cities and towns across the island of Ireland. So that's Dublin, Belfast, Cork, Limerick, Derry, Galway and Waterford. And when we collect sightings of red and grey squirrels, I'm hoping that we're going to get some more information about uh, how they're faring in these urban areas. And included in that would be how the grey squirrel is doing against these predators. We have received an awful lot of sightings so far and I've not had myself that this doesn't mean that it's not the case, but sightings submitted, I haven't heard anything about predation by cats and dogs. That's not to say that it's not a factor, but we'll be able to learn an awful lot more about the both species in these areas when we gather as much information as possible from the public. 
Is the underlying motivation for this an attempt to eliminate the grey squirrel? We have this attitude to the grey squirrel that it is an undesirable creature which we shouldn't have. And the reservoir of them appears to be urban parks and gardens now. Are you surveying with some vague idea that you will take measures to eliminate it even in urban areas? You can't really bring in pine martens into urban areas, can you? No, not at all. What I would hope for for this survey is that we can just learn more about where they are and how they're doing. Since the survey is launched in seven areas, say, for example, if we take Dublin, we have an awful lot of sightings of grey squirrels in Dublin city centre. Because of this, we'll be able to see where the red squirrels aren't able to inhabit. So my hope for this survey is not so much eliminating the greys, but protecting the reds by identifying potential habitat for the red squirrel and highlighting likely dispersal routes. We can then plan future conservation actions to protect red squirrels in towns and cities. And this is particularly important with an increase in urban areas in the future. And coupled with this, we can find out an awful lot more about the importance of green spaces and the functionality of ecological corridors that are present in our towns and cities. In the case of the grey squirrel, I feel that it's not the grey squirrel's fault that he's here. He was brought over and it's not fair. He's just trying to survive the same as all the other animals we have. That being said, an issue with grey squirrels inhabiting these areas and continuing to thrive in urban regions like Belfast and Dublin is that Number one, red squirrels won't be able to re-establish themselves in these areas at all because they won't be able to coexist. And another thing is that grey squirrels in the countryside, they do engage in bark stripping, which is detrimental to the trees. And they can also, if when interacting with the reds, can outcompete them. And this could lead to a potential decline of red squirrel populations in the future. And that would be such a shame after they've just recovered. It seems to me, Emma, that as a non-squirrel person, the two squirrels don't compete to that extent. If you take the red squirrel, he likes to go high in the trees. He wishes he was a bird and his big bushy tail is a kind of wing. Whereas the grey is down on the ground a lot. He's a much heavier animal. He's more carnivorous and all that sort of thing. They eat birds' eggs and chicks and things of like that if he stumbles on them. So they don't compete that much. Now, you also talk about he was invited in, like the Normans, 1066 in England, 1169 here. They came in and it was a tragedy at the time, but the Normans in the long run were of great benefit to us. They transformed the country that had formed Britain and Ireland. So in a sense, the grey squirrel, at first, he's a scourge. But maybe in the longer term, he has a place here and niche here. He will shape things to his advantage, perhaps, and that might be to the advantage of many other things. I'm going on a lot about this kind of, but have you any sympathy with this kind of notion? I do have sympathy that the grey squirrel didn't choose to be here and he's just making the best of the situation. However, they do cause issues for the reds in that while they might not inhabit the same forest layer, they do eat the same food and they do compete with each other for those resources. Um, Ireland has a very low percentage of forest cover. There, There's not much for them to make a home in. And 
since there isn't enough food for the both of them. And as you mentioned, the grey squirrel spends a lot of time on the forest floor. This may be interfering with the red squirrel caches when they cache their food for the winter. And if you're saving up all of your food just to have it in the winter and then you go to collect it and it's gone, I wouldn't say that would be great uh, given that there's not much food for them to eat in the winter in some of these environments as well. Emma, you mentioned Belfast and that the Reds are absent uniquely from Belfast. And also we know that the Greys have not managed to cross the Shannon. Now, the Grey is an extraordinarily inventive species when you give him tests to try and find nuts hidden away or something like that. He's brilliant at doing so. He's ingenious in his approach. Surely to God he can manage to get across bridges to the west of Ireland. What is going on here that these two squirrels have no-go areas? Where do they come from? In Belfast City, we have not received any red squirrel sightings. We've received many grey squirrel sightings. Uh, But that's not to say that they're not around the city. It's just I've not received any sightings on it. That while they are present in woodlands and nature reserves outside the city and they're being very well monitored out there, there have been no sightings submitted from the city itself. And this may be because the grey squirrels are occupying these urban parks. Um, In Dublin also, red squirrel sightings have only been submitted to the south of the city and also in many areas uh, to north of County Wicklow. While in the city centre, there have been many grey squirrel sightings submitted. And this may also suggest that because the grey squirrel is present in the city, the red squirrel isn't able to make it in and establish a population in there. In terms of the River Shannon barrier that you mentioned, we're surveying the cities of Limerick, Cork and Galway. And we can see that the red squirrels are residing in urban parks in all three of these cities, showing that it is possible for them to live in these areas. Um, As to why the grey squirrel hasn't breached that barrier, I honestly couldn't tell you. It could be because there is just not very suitable habitat immediately across the River Shannon for them. Or it could be because pine martens have increased in these areas or there is higher predation in these areas and they're just not able to establish themselves as well as they do in the east of the country. Finally, Emma, you have this survey up and running in which you want the public to participate. What do you want us precisely to do? What I am looking for is sightings from the public of red and grey squirrels from the seven urban areas mentioned. So that's Dublin, Belfast, Cork, Limerick, Derry, Galway and Waterford. So if you've seen either a red or a grey squirrel in these urban areas, I'd love if you could contact us or submit your sighting biodiversity.ie forward slash surveys forward slash the urban squirrel survey and you could submit your sighting through there. And we are also present on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Urban Squirrel Survey. Thank you, Emma. It will be wonderful to hear what you have discovered when this survey result is analysed. Thank you very much. It's great talking to you. Thank you, Emma and Richard. As always, more details can be found on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. That's where you'll go to to get the full lineup of what's happening next week as part of Nature Nights. It starts this day week 
Halloween from 10 to 11pm each evening. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and as I've said earlier, a bit on Saturday. Okay, we'll talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. And Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney. And the primetime biodiversity special that Derek mentioned tonight is available over on RTE Player. Email mooney at rte.ie.